Hello, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. My name is Billy Newman, and I'm here today with Marina Hansen. How you doing, Marina? Hey, Billy. How's it going? I'm doing pretty good. I hope you're doing good, too. We, uh, we just finished up a cool camping trip, which was a nice time. We, uh, we went out on a crowded Memorial Day weekend, and uh, we did a long road trip out to eastern Oregon, southeastern Oregon, kind of near the Nevada border. And uh, we stopped by Warner Rim and Heart Mountain. We're probably going to be focusing on those two spots that we, uh, we camped out at and some of the photo projects that we did there for most of the weekend. I think it'd be cool. Did you have a good time out there camping, Marina? Yeah, I had a really good time. It was uh, my second time out in that part of Eastern Oregon. So it was really cool getting to go back. I think it was 2014 the last time I was there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was about two years ago. In May, in early May that we were out there. Right. Yeah. So it was cool. I'm glad that we got to go back. We uh, we found like that little tree that we'd made a mark on yeah. years past by the campfire. That was cool. I thought it was fun to, to finally find it again. But uh, yeah, I was out there last October. I think there's probably a podcast that I did about it around that time um, when I was uh, out there with my dad and we did one of those uh, those fall camping trips. It changes a lot between you know, year or season to season, it's quite a bit different in the fall and the experience that you have in the fall than it is from sort of how that area of the desert is during the early springtime or mid springtime. Right now it's really quite a bit more wet than it has been in years past. It was really wet. I was surprised. It was much more wet than uh, the first time that I'd been there a couple of years ago. I remember oh. the that first time that we went, it was much more desert like the lake beds were really dried out and uh this time we were there there was uh, a little bit of water in one of the lake beds that we'd been in and some little plants that were growing there and a bunch of frogs yeah how do frogs get out there there's so how many do frogs, frogs even get out there yeah and those cool birds there were those pretty white birds that were walking around yeah they're normally not out there either i'm not sure where they'd fly off to you know when the season seasons start to change just a little bit more or in a few weeks even from now when that stuff starts to dry out even more throughout the summer. I wonder what it'll be like. But years past when we'd gone out there, there, there really was already quite a bit more dry than what it showed up to be. Like when we were out there, there were a lot of wildflowers and a lot of just kind of greenery around. A lot of yeah, like a lot of greenery. fresh grass and Lots a lot of, of and all the sagebrush, which really gets a lot drier later in the summer in August or September, October, when we've gone over the past a lot of the time. It, it's really much much drier it's way less fragrant there's no flowering part of the sagebrush and it's just kind of one of those tough rugged desert plants that are just kind of stuck out somewhere in eastern oregon yeah but right now they're they're really wet it seems or it seems like they're really green they're really fresh they're really fragrant when you like grab it or break it yeah it smells a lot like sage they have those little fruits growing on them too i'd never seen yeah. that before i never I wasn't seen sure what that was. sage fruit yeah but yeah these little puffy puffy balls that sort of grow <laughs> so interesting yeah it looked like a little just like a little berry but you yeah. split it open and it was just fuzz and foam on the inside <laughs> it was pretty strange fuzzy blossoms <laughs> yeah so we did the trip to do a lot of new photo stuff i i mentioned a little bit on that last podcast that uh that i'd ordered a nikon d3 an old camera but new to me new to uh to full frame for me and uh, it's cool. I, I really, really been having a good time. Marina and I both went out and we shot a lot of photos with it. It's been pretty cool to kind of bring it back and then quickly upload it. There's a lot of great stuff about digital. 
It's fun. Uh, and I'm really happy to have it. I think there's going to be a lot of cool professional work that we can do. It really Definitely. opens up a lot of doors too. Like it does. The advancement, it's not just megapixel, but the advancement of the sensor, just the advancement of the, the camera function itself as a digital tool. is It's just going to be a better tool set for a photographer than the other camera equipment, the other camera body I had before. Even though it's the same design and look and shape and function as a Nikon D2H, you know, it looks about the same, right? Yeah. But really, it's just going to be so much different for us because functionally, it's so much different. It, yeah, it really is. It's such a huge improvement. I'm really happy that you have this nice new camera. New to us camera. New to us, which it's I'm pretty great. happy about. I need to figure out a way to like see how many shutter exposures have gone off on it. It looks like it's really never been used, though. It's in such good shape. Like it looks really, really clean. Shape. It looks like yeah. it is new. We probably got it more dirty on this trip than it had ever been before. <laughs> probably true. <laughs> we need to get a sensor cleaner. Have you seen those? Oh. These little squeegees that you're supposed to clean off your sensor with. Yeah. We should get some of those. We need to get something like that. I think I already got some dust in there. <laughs> Too many lens changes uh, out in the desert. Yeah, it's so dusty out there. There's no way to it. was really it. dusty, you yeah. Find dust everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere inside the car. It's yep. on every surface. Yeah, it just really blows every in. Surface. Because every road out there, it's just a dirt gravel road that you're driving on. So, yeah, so we drove out there. It was Saturday morning that we made our, made our drive out there. And we, we traveled... Uh, east from eugene here over the cascades to lapine oregon and then took highway 31 and passed silver lake and then summer lake and then abert rim and then drove down to lakeview oregon where we continued further east on highway 140 and then took a cutoff to go to this little town called plush that's way out there and before we got there we took a, another cutoff road onto uh this, just this dirt road that cuts up and it goes to this BLM land that's up there. Sometimes they run cattle on it. Sometimes it's just wild antelope that are running around out there that you see. Most of the time, there's really nothing out there. Um, but I've gone camping out there a few times. I think it's like a hunter's camp a lot of the year. Um, but really, I, I think it's a great dispersed camping site that you can go to any time of the year, at least any, uh, any of the three season times of the year. Probably get snowed in out there. I've never been oh, out in that yeah, area in the winter. Ugh. It'd be really cool, though. I bet snow on the rim rock oh, that would, be would look really so cool, cool, right? Those yeah. big mesas out there. That's the interesting thing is a lot of people, when they think about Oregon, they really only think about the westernmost third of Oregon. And the yeah. westernmost third of Oregon, that's west of what would end up being the rain shadow that's caused by the Cascade Mountain Range. That western section is where we get all of those evergreen trees and those forests and the lakes and the rivers and that look of Oregon that's kind of that picturesque thing that goes on the postcard. But there's so much of Oregon, almost two-thirds of it, that really looks quite a bit more like what you would think of when you think of Idaho or Nevada. That's still that same section of land out there, and it doesn't just change when we come to the Oregon border into lush green forest, unfortunately. Yeah, it's really it's interesting how much variety there is in the landscape in Oregon. Because I think that people really do think of the, the pine trees and yeah, right, and yeah, much greener stuff, which is a lot of port, a lot of uh, Oregon. But yeah, the desert out there is really interesting. Not many trees to see. Uh, a lot of a uh, lot of sagebrush, like you were just talking about uh, a couple yeah. minutes ago. Yeah, as soon as you get past a certain elevation point, 
it turns into these uh, just these small red pines that are out there in that high desert area. And then real quickly, like when we were coming up to Fort Rock on our drive out there, you could see as we were in the pines and then real soon, just over a couple of miles, you get to this point where there were no more trees. Yeah, there were just a few junipers and they'd be kind of stretched out or there'd be a few trees planted where there there was an establishment like a town <laughs> or a house or a ranch or something that was really the only spots where you'd see planted trees out there um, but really yeah just a lot of well some juniper a lot of small stuff and you know a lot of a lot of sagebrush the scale out there is really strange because it opens up so much you can see so far right for as flat as it is and and for the the way that the landscape looks after you get past the cascades it's just a lot of rim rock and it's a lot of sagebrush like we're talking about. So it's cool. Like um, I think Abert Rim, that one that we passed on that drive down there, I think that's even bigger than Hart Mountain. Do you remember that? Oh, As we yeah. Drove past it? It's a huge looking rim. It's really impressive. I want to get some photos of that too. We should go back out there. Find yeah. a cool spot to take some, some good photos of that sort of stuff. I think there's another area like the Poker Gym Ridge. That's another feature out there. That's another big ridge that I want to take some photographs at. We should check it out. Yeah, it's Poker Gym Ridge is really like the north section of the land feature that is Hart Mountain. So, you know, that oh, rise that okay, comes yeah. out. I think if you go up quite a bit further, then there's this other section, this other feature of it that's called Poker Gym Ridge. Cool. Um, it's just some old, some old name that was, uh, <laughs> that was put onto this old land feature out there. Um, I guess what, 18. 1850s, 1860s, 70s, 80s. There's, there's really like Native American activity out there. Uh, pretty close to like 1900, you know? I think it was the Northern Paiute in that area. Okay. If I understand right, I think it was like Northern Nevada uh, and Southeastern Oregon. Uh, but I'm not sure. Maybe, you know, they probably stretched around in quite a few places. There's a Klamath Indians too. Mm-hmm. That was an area over there. So, um, so yeah, there's probably a handful of different tribes, but uh, but yeah, I think that must have been fairly recent. So when we drove out there, we went to the spot on Warner Rim and uh, did some camping out there. It was a great time. We had a ton of fun, but we went out there most to do uh, to do some photograph projects with the the, the D three that we brought. And what we I was excited to try, and we, I think we did a good job of capturing with some long exposure images. And for the longest time, you know, for film, like we talk about a lot on the podcast, when we shoot with film, it really doesn't have the the same capabilities when you're shooting a long exposure when you're shooting for something with a lot of light sensitivity do you yeah. know what i'm talking about so it really doesn't compete the same way as a as a modern digital sensor can compete for low light sensitivity yeah. being able to turn the gain up on the sensor pushing that iso up to something higher than a thousand gives you a lot of headroom that you can't duplicate on the analog side. Yeah, there's a lot more limitation with film for dark lit photography or yeah. lightless photography. Yeah. I was really impressed by this camera. Yeah, I was really impressed too. So we, uh, we cranked up the ISO, we put a wide angle lens on and we were trying to do some some star photographs, uh, which we did for, for a little bit of time. There's a, there's a whole bunch of techniques with doing star photographs and star trail photos. I think there's um, like a set of techniques called stacking where you... You layer multiple long exposures on top of each other, and it, it'll try and match the dots that are the stars mm-hmm. together, so that you can take shorter exposures and then multiply those with, uh, you know, like say so you take uh, fifty exposures of a of the same position in the sky, 
the software will help you auto track the movement of the stars. And so it'll realign them and then it'll oh. kind of layer that light on top of itself. So you can get brighter, better detail out of those, those really dim lit spots in the sky. So you can kind of fill in. That's how I think they get some of those really intense star Milky Way photos. I have a question. Yeah. What's the difference between doing it that way where you're taking multiple exposures and laying and layering them and uh, using just the same one? And layering it oh yeah so you're taking one photograph and then yeah. la- and then duplicating it and layering it yeah i'm not sure i don't know much about it i've never done that process i've never done any photo stacking before i tried it with a couple pieces of software and it never really gave me the results that i wanted because yeah. um, you'd run into what ghosting a lot of the time where it just wouldn't layer the photo in the right way uh, and then so you get this sort of weird haloing effect or it would it would just make the photos too large. So I think at the time my technique wasn't good enough for it. Now, so I said that, I think that's the past way of doing it, this image stacking technique. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I think that's professionally what's done. Like if, um, I think like the Hubble telescope works on that same principle, that it takes these exposures and then they layer those exposures to get um, a better resolution of light that they can stack on top of itself and then represent in a really clear way. Um, so I think what's going on most of the time now, I think past what, 2009, 2010, or probably around the same time that the D3 came out. I think the D3 was one of the first cameras along with the Canon 5D Mark II uh, was full frame and had these really good full frame high ISO sensors that were really good at low light. Um, and so I think that since that time, since we've had that, most of these star photos that we're talking about have been used with just that technique, with just dropping the ISO as far down as it goes to get the most amount of light that you can into the camera over a 20 or 30 second exposure. And then just editing that one single file, which is this, which is the technique that we did tonight or, or a few nights ago when we created the, the frames that we did okay. around the campsite. And so I see that there's a lot of that going on where they're just taking that and then like other photographers would be going into Photoshop cutting the layer of the stars let's say it's like like what some of the photos we had where there's like a a layer a line or excuse me a skyline on it with a few trees Mm -hmm. and then it breaks out into the sky above it what they would do is they would cut along that that skyline and then they would create like a new layer from that same photograph of the stars and then make adjustments Ah. to that to add color or saturation i think if you like on instagram you might see a lot of these really fantastically colorful images of the milky way yeah I, and those are, those are artificially adjusted to increase their contrast for right. artistic purposes, right. which is great. It looks pretty. Um, I think we should try and get into that too. But for what we did, we just did uh, the best we could with the gear and the equipment that we've got. We had a, a 28 millimeter 2.8 lens. So I think we set it to 2.8. We put the ISO up past 6,400. And then I think we did like a 20 and a 30 second exposure in a few spots. But uh, there's like, some, there's a, have you heard of this? There's a, there's a, a formula or ratio of how, of what your focal length is on your lens and then how long you can leave the shutter open on the camera before the stars start to streak because of the rotation of the earth. 
Yeah, I have heard of that before. I think that you've explained it to me. I don't remember what the what the formula is, though. I don't know what the formula is either. But the idea is, and conceptually, it starts to make pretty good sense. If you're zoomed in more, like let's say you're using a, a hundred millimeter lens, and so you're pretty tight, the you're more zoomed in on the sky, and so that means that it's going to take less time for the transit of that star to move all the way across your frame. Same sort of thing that we have, like if we're shooting with a telephoto lens, let's say like 400 millimeters, we have to shoot at a lot higher shutter speed because just if the camera shakes just a little bit, then the whole image gets blurred. Right. But if we're shooting at a really wide angle and the, the camera shakes a little bit, we don't see the image get blurred because the effective amount of of jostle or blur, motion blur that's going to happen from a low shutter is minimized because it's such a wide angle. Right. Does that make sense? There's yeah. so much more in the frame. So the distance that it's going to blur as you move the camera is going to be a lot less because the angle of view is so much wider. Right. <laughs> Complicated I've, to think about. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, or I was going to compare it to what I've noticed with uh, our little telescope. Like yeah, when we're doing yeah. observations, if you're just looking at the stars, it takes a while for them to move across the sky. You can see that they move. If you're watching them for a while, you see that they move. But um, yeah. but in a telescope, when you're trying to line stuff up, or I guess with planets more specifically, when you line it up in the telescope, it only stays in the frame for a yeah, few minutes it and moving. then it, it keeps moving. So you have to yeah. keep realigning it. So, so it makes sense. It's that same idea that, it's yeah, so if we... In, zoomed in on that planet in the same way we would see that trail create a you know full transit across the frame of what you know we're viewing right. so if, if we put it like at 400 or something we would see a lot of trails occur really quickly um but what we're trying to do is get that still crisp look so that we can see the land and then those really bright stars what's always been hard with cameras is that you're not really able to expose that low dynamic range that people can see at night the camera until very recently just wasn't capable of capturing what the human eye could. When we're able to look up and see the stars at night, we can reveal our eyes have the resolution to perceive the bright white stars against the really dark sky. And it's not something like that we we're not able to expose, right? It's not something right. that's too dark. Like if, if we're in a room with a lot of bright lights or if we're under a big spotlight, then it's harder to see those stars above because our eyes are adjusting for the exposure that we'd need for a brightly lit room. Right. So we're not able to see those fine details in the sky. Similarly with the camera, when it's exposing for relative daylight, it's not going to be able to expose for these really low light situations where there's really, there's no direct light source. And it's just supposed to capture ambient light over a period of a few seconds, but it's cool. Now that we have a camera that's a little bit more capable of it, we've been uh, trying to set it up. We've been doing like 15, 20, 30 second exposures. With the 28 millimeter, it seems like about 20 seconds or so is about as long as you can get in before you start to see a little bit of that star trail start to take in place. And I think, what was the ratio? It was something like, uh, what was it? I think it was like focal length versus like over time of exposure. Something okay. like that. So I think it was, yeah, the wider that your angle was, like if you had an 18 to 55 lens on there, sure. if it was at 18 millimeters, you could go to almost 60 seconds of an exposure before you'd start to see the drag 
on the stars so you can get a really crisp exposure. What that allows you to do is capture more light for more time. Right. So you'd almost want to use the widest angle lens that you can to get that crisp, sharp look to the stars. If you're trying to get a picture like that, that, that just has more light captured over the course of a whole minute, that's, that's where you can get those really bright, sharp pictures of the Milky Way like above us. But if you zoomed in, let's say to 50 millimeters or so, we'd have to drop our shutter speed down if we still wanted to retain that crispness in the photo. Right. We'd have to drop our shutter speed down to let's say 20 or 15 seconds or so because at that focal length, that's when the zoom that would be effective for that lens would start to reveal the Earth's rotation and that star trail effect starting to take place. That's really interesting. It's a cool little equation. I want to get uh, a wider angle. I like this 28, yeah. but I think that's something, I think that uh, we should. That's 17 to 35 or whatever. I think the 17 to about. 35 would be cool. I think there's a, a Sigma 10 to 24. That'd be oh, pretty that cool. That would be really cool. That's real wide. Yeah, that's like similar that's to what I have to shoot wide. with for those interior photos. So I think it'd be cool, be cool if we're able to do I'd be interior photographs for real estate or something. Yeah, I want to like do that. That would yeah. be great. Yeah, it'd be cool. It'd definitely be cool, especially Man, on full frame. So it'd be really cool. This That'd be is wonderful. Where I think maybe it's a 10, maybe it's a 10 millimeters, maybe it's a 10 millimeter fisheye lens. But I think on a full frame camera, you get the the entire circle effect. Like, have you seen those photographs? Like they'll, they'll take a picture of the ground, let's say, but, and the, the lens is so wide that it almost looks like a 3D effect where it looks like a little sphere ball oh, in the I center. Oh, I have seen that. Yeah. And it's, it's just this effect that you get with this really wide angle lens. I think like an oh. eight millimeter fisheye or a 10 millimeter fisheye, but that only works on, on a full frame. frame camera because I think you then have to start dealing with that crop factor. Right. And so then it's like a, like a 20 millimeter lens or something. Sure. So the multiplication that goes along with it. But yeah, it's kind of trippy how that is, but it's cool. Yeah. We should try and get a wide angle. Do some cool star photos. I would really love that. I really want to get more into the astrophotography. I think it's a really cool other thing in photography to be working on, which is what I want. Yeah. It's really true. Another subject. I was most into night photography. When I got the D40, that's really all I would do because I'd go to school during the day and then at night I'd have the time, but there's not really the same type of light source to take photographs of. Sure. So I just had this little tiny D40 and this really cheap $18 tripod. <laughs> and it was so, it was so light. I remember it blew over when we were in San Francisco. Oh, no. <laughs> not, yeah, just uh, those days are gone. But back in the day, yeah, I put the tripod on and then uh, I'd just be practicing trying to take these long exposure photographs. And you just try and go through as many exposures as you can and try and figure stuff out. It's a really great way to learn about manual settings and about camera settings because it makes you go through everything so much more slowly. Right. Your exposure is slowed down to 15 or 20 seconds, so you get to observe how that goes goes by instead of what goes by normally in a 60th or a 100th of a second. We have like this 15-second period to kind of observe what's going on, what's being absorbed, what's in the frame, what lights are going to highlight, and then how that represents on a photograph that looks different than the way that you see it in your head, which is a piece of photography that you have to get used to, that what you see in your eyes isn't really the way that the camera is gonna show it to you. Right. And night photography is a good way of 
learning that lesson and training yourself Definitely. in that lesson because it will look different than what you're seeing in a good way most of the time with this night photography because you get to reveal more light than what your human eye is able to perceive by leaving that shutter open for a longer period of time than what you would be able to do. So it's able to hold it and capture all that light and show you sort of a surreal perspective on a place that, uh, that you'd want to see. But yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff that we could do. I liked those campfire photos that we put together. I liked those so much. You got some really cool shots on this trip. Just from that first night, there's a ton of stuff that I think is going to be so cool. Yeah, I think so too. I think, um, well, yeah, what we did is we set the, the campfire up. We had the, the cars in the background, our uh, camp rigs. And it's a really cool campsite. It's, it's up against this rim rock, this small rim. It's like what a 15, 20 foot high rim that yeah, kind of runs along on, uh, you know, just on the landscape that's there. And then you look out northeast toward the, toward the rim of Heart Mountain. And on a night like when we were there, there's so much starlight and there's so much light from Mars and Jupiter and Saturn that are also up that the, the sky itself without a moon has a luminance to it, just to the human eye. Yeah. And there's so few lights in that area. There's, there's really no light pollution to, to be heard of out there. There's, it's like 60 miles to anywhere that's going to have a significant source of light. Yeah, it's great how dark it is. Yeah, It's great being able to see the stars so Real well. fun. It's cool. Yeah, you can see the light of the sky silhouetting the mountains that are yeah. the landscape. You can see how the sky is brighter than the landscape and you can see the separation line on the horizon. I thought that was really cool. I thought it was really cool when we were there. And then I also thought it was great when we were looking back through the photos also. But it was so cool seeing yeah. uh, like Heart Mountain. Yeah. Heart Mountain in the, in the background of that, those cool photos. Yeah, which is the line of the stars rising up behind it. It's really, yeah. it's really nice. I like that photograph a lot. And the exposure, the way that it looks, the, the coloring on the trees and the grass beside the campfire that's lit by the it's campfire. Great, yeah. And being able to see the sky above. It just looks like it, sort of a natural camping you know when you're when you're out camping you can see the stars you can see the fire and i really like that part of it i think it'll be really fun to to throw up pretty soon you look pretty good in it too thanks billy that's yeah. one of my favorite pictures of myself from this camping season yeah it's pretty I good think it's really fun we're early in camping we're trying to break ourselves into it you know it's a rough area out there it is that kind of landscape wears on you <laughs> yeah the landscape wears on you a lot it's it's strange the dirt gets in everything you get tired faster. The elevation makes yeah. you more tired. Uh, yeah, it's really strange how it is, but it's just a more taxing thing to endure than what it is living in more comfortable areas. Yeah, it really is. It it wore me down a bit. Yeah, I'm not quite in camping shape yet. I uh, think. And the mosquitoes. There. Oh man, you know that was really the hardest part for me was the mosquitoes. My legs are pretty covered in bites. I was wearing pants. Long pants and boots, but they got through. Shoot. Shoot. Sorry, Marina. Eating my legs. I got a couple bites. I was trying to keep them off me. Yeah. But there's, yeah, there was a lot of, it's, you know, I guess it was like an El Nino year. More water. Yeah. More mosquitoes. Bigger mosquitoes. They're bigger Shoot. out there. They're yeah. In Eastern Oregon, they mosquitoes are a bigger species. Yeah. That's freaky. Yeah. They're, they're harder to deal with. Do um, they have to be tougher and bigger? I think it's, yeah, because they're, they're tougher. There? Have to survive it for longer. They seem tougher. Yeah, they're Yuck. little high desert mosquitoes. They're hungrier. <laughs> Too hungry. Um, but yeah, so outside of getting a little bit up by the mosquitoes. Oh yeah, your lips chap. And oh, you just get dirty yeah. faster. 
uh, yeah, uh, it's yeah, hard. My skin was pretty, pretty embedded. And the temperatures switched by so much. The days are pretty warm, even oh, hot. Yeah. It was comfortable, fortunately, while we were there. But really, it can get too much exposure in, in the in the hot wise while you're out there, especially starting in this time of year in June. Uh, but it was pretty comfortable in the days while we were there. It was starting to get hot. And then at night, it would flip to that other side where it would really lose that heat quickly. So And it would cold. just get cold. Yeah. Too cold. We had to have, we had to have fires. <laughs> yeah. Those nights that we did. Yeah, it was you good. You really can't, can't be out if you don't. Yeah, yeah. It was cool, too. So what we were focused on, on finding when we were camping was uh, dispersed campsites that are just further out that are real camping, you know, where that you're not close to someone else and you bring in all of your own supplies and there's really no campground or camp facility or site that's already sort of structured for you in a real way. A lot of these are old hunting camps that are just uh, pullouts on the road that have old fire rings made out of rocks that you pull into for free. There's no oversight or the people there, they're on BLM land out in Eastern Oregon and it's just not, not something that's overseen by anyone. Uh, and I think very few people know about it or utilize it really through the year. It doesn't ever seem like those areas are crowded, even on a crowded weekend, like where we were and when yeah. we were, there were only a couple other cars out on that ridge doing any kind of camping at all. I think it's really mostly relegated to to the hunting season. It seems like people go out there and know about that area for that time of year. But for us, for recreational stuff, and probably for good reason, given that there's no comfortable natural resources in the area, <laughs> it's just not seen as a recreational destination for spring and summertime travel. Lucky but, for us. Lucky for us, we got to go out there and enjoy ourselves at a pretty secluded, uh, private, open-skied, Eastern Oregon campsite. The second day, we cruised over to Heart Mountain, and uh, came up real close to that rim rock, which was cool. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful area out there. In the fall, it's great too because all those aspen trees that are sort of native to that elevation range all start to turn yellow and gold at the same time. And you really get that cool, fiery mountainside look in a lot of places out there. Yeah. It's, quite, it's really quite cool. It's I'd fun. love to do a trip with you there later this fall. Yeah, the I've fall color looks great. If you can catch the fall so color... It looks really cool. I think it'd be fun to plan a trip out there. It's the best time of year for Eastern Oregon. Yeah, the temperatures start to get a little bit more comfortable and it just has a cool harvest season feel to it. Yeah. A lot of those places out there are all ranch towns, you know, or they're, they're farming towns. Right. So they're, they're all kind of in their, um, their season right there of preparing everything. But it's fun. And the hunting season and stuff is going on during that time too. It, weather dependent. It can be a little frustrating with the weather, but it's really... If it's nice out, it's really one of the best spots to be. It's a lot of fun. But yeah, checking out the Rim Rock around Heart Mountain was really fun. And then I guess when we get back to our next episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast, we'll tell you about that second day, some of the cool stuff we did, some of the uh, long mountain road drives that we did, pulling in through uh, Heart Mountain, some of the wildlife we saw. Yeah. A couple cool things. Cool. Yeah. We got some photos of that too. We got to post all that stuff. Hey, you're right. It'll be cool. Uh, I think for this episode, it'll wrap everything up. I want to remind everyone out there to go ahead and try, if you can, to subscribe to this podcast feed, the Billy Newman Photo podcast feed. Uh, check out the Facebook page. I created a, a business page for Billy Newman Photo. You might be able to find that if you search for it. Um, and I guess you can follow me on Twitter too. It's at Billy Newman. Marina, you got anything to plug? Yeah, check out my Instagram and my Twitter. They're both the same name. It's at Marina Rose Alice. 
That's super. So on behalf of Marina Hansen, my name is Billy Newman, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast.